Why are you playing video games in the alley? Come inside. Welcome to Meeting What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnow. This week, Sean, Chris, and I discuss the relationship between China and the West when it comes to fine art. We cover a fascinating story about 12 bronze heads of the Zodiac and talk about how shifting cultures are shifting influence. Hey, Sean. Hey, Chris. Hello, hello. Hey, y'all. We are in week two of our softly themed America Month. And I say softly because I think uh, this week's episode is going to touch on themes of America, but it is sort of lightly connected to it. We're talking about Chinese art in America and the influence on Chinese art in the West and the history of Chinese art and fine art Western culture. And the reason why this is a America issue is, I would argue, twofold. One, because America has we we've positioned ourselves as the the cultural leaders of the contemporary world, and so our history is is deeply tied into all of that. And and when you when you place yourself, you know, on that pedestal, your relationship to other areas of the world has some importance. But the other side of it is that. China is one of the first places sort of internationally that America started to really flex its influence in really terrible colonistic ways and really started to betray our proclamation that we were the first post-colonial power. Obviously, this happened in Japan as well. We talked about that in a couple episodes in May. But the situation in China is unique for a number of reasons. Obviously, it's it's a very different place than Japan. It's an entirely different part of the world. And it has a very different role to play in the modern world, right? And in our own economy. It is this place that we are simultaneously deeply reliant on and deeply determined to say that we are above and not reliant on it. Mm-hmm. So. Sean, this episode was, in a lot of ways, your idea and, and your suggestion. What were some of the reasons you wanted to talk about it, particularly in, in this month and with everything else that we are going to be going over in July? Yeah, it's fascinating, right? Because the U.S. insists it is the global number one superpower and China is threatening for reasons real and some reasons racist. And all, you know, mixed together in a fun soup. And it is fascinating to watch unfold, like, in the microcosm that is Twitter, and especially the microcosm I live in, the left commie gay disaster Twitter scope of, like, what their opinion of China is. And, like, it, it is almost scary to see the tinfoil conspiracy hat. A lot of leftists be so pro-China in a way that positions itself as China is the one being bullied here and America is mean and you don't go to anything and those re-education camps, no, 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 they're just, they're just fine. Those, the, the, the ethnic minorities, the Uyghurs, they're just, they're just fine. Shh. What are you talking about? The U.S. is making that all up. And <laughs> when the answer is probably somewhere in between, these are two giant evil entities that have regularly done evil to each other and upon themselves. 
So it's that. There's that fascinating tension of that fine line of, like, both parties are at fault, and yet, you know, the U.S. has done terrible things to China for sure. And looking at that through the lens of art is interesting. But it's also more than anything that when you think, like we've talked before again and again about Asian aesthetics and especially in the West and like art aesthetics that make it from the East to the West, it's Japan. And that's it. Besides, you know, our terrible cultural touch points when we conflate all the cultures together and then kind of shove it together. (laughs) We see you in the 90s with the chopsticks and the hair and the bindies and oh, good Lord. But when I think of modern Chinese art, I'm no expert. I think of Ai Weiwei and I think of Guo Pei. Guo Pei is a Chinese couturier famous for like this giant coat she made for Rihanna for the Met Gala that looks like an omelet. But Ai Weiwei as the only major modern Chinese artist that we hear about who allegedly you don't hear too much about in China because he's been ixnayed and censored because he is incredibly vocal about being critical of China. And you can't help but wonder, why is that the only major Chinese artist we hear about in the West? Hmm. More to think about. (laughs) Well, let's touch on Ai Weiwei right out of the gate. Because if if you are listening and you follow contemporary art, you probably know that name. Ai Weiwei is a a multidiscipline contemporary artist, works a lot in sculpture, and is also famous for being on house arrest and being excommunicated from China. Multiple times. Yeah. A, a few times. He is famously anti-current Chinese government, anti-communism. The cynical view would be that Ai Weiwei fits really nicely into what the West would want from a contemporary Chinese artist, right? He's, he's mm-hmm. a Chinese dissident. He is anti-communism. His work is all about undermining the regime in China. Um, and and so if you think about Chinese art at all, you're probably thinking about Ai Weiwei. Especially as an American. As Sean touched on already, so many people, stateside at least, have a real negative view towards China and towards a lot of, actually towards a lot of part of that world, which you know, we definitely saw in a very real way a couple of months ago. And so to see a Chinese artist who is very popular in the West, but the artist also carries a lot of these same tenets that Americans already carry kind of makes it so it fits like a nice, neat and tidy mold. Right. If if you want to be, if you are from anywhere else in the world and you want America to like you, Build a brand around anti-communism. Mm-hmm. It wins every time. Yeah, it's worked since like the 70s. Yeah. We're still not over that. Yeah. Jeez. You can be a totalitarian dictator, but as long as you are working against communism, the CIA probably won't overthrow your government. In fact, they'll help you install it. In fact, we might even sell you arms. Right. Right. Or they'll help you stage the coup. Yeah. <laughs> See the Taliban. (laughs) Sigh. So the history of China is really interesting because it is a huge place and it is a diverse place. It is home to about a third of the world's population. It is one of the oldest established civilizations 
in the world. It has exerted influence throughout its entire history over the lands around it. It has storied history. It has legends that have been exported. It was key to trade in in Europe for a long time. And unlike Japan, it was more willing to interact with the West than Japan and then some other nations in, in Asia. So China in and of itself has a history, uh, this complex history that has taken on many, many forms and has always represented this sort of seat of power on that side of the globe. And so it has always been a sort of target of interest for Western nations who were interested in its natural resources and in its culture, but also in its appeal as a place to conquer, which has fueled its sort of complex history, right? A lot of people tend to think about China as communist China, right? Mm-hmm. That is that has been all it has been for our entire lives, our parents' entire lives. But relatively speaking, communist China is a fairly new thing. It had entire histories before that and entire cultures before that. Yeah. And one thing that that is really notable about China is that when that communist government took over, it executed programs that wiped out a lot of its traditional culture. And so what what we might think of as contemporary Chinese culture is rooted in those things, but it's also somewhat separate and it creates this kind of complex sort of situation that we don't necessarily see a, a true parallel to in the West, I would argue. Right. And but somehow a lot of the, a lot of Chinese art that you'll see in the museums is all just dynastic pre-cultural revolution stuff. And then there's kind of just like, ah, eh, nothing's happened since. You know, they shut it down and they they might have opened it up, but mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. Most of my interpretations of China, whether from an artistic perspective or a historical perspective, is this dynastic period. And then all of a sudden, it's just communism, complete lack of free expression. And that's all that was ever really covered in the history books that I remember, that I recall from my history classes and from my Western Civ classes. It was just like, yep, these are the folks that we fought against and they're bad. They're bad. They bad. We good. (laughs) Done. Nailed it. And everything else preceding it is like all the other information that's seemingly available to me and my limited experience with looking for this kind of, these kind of materials has been stuff that's seemingly ancient, you know, given how long China has been a cultural power, of course, they're going to have artistic merits that are thousands of years old, but I can't really recall much, if anything, that a, is explicitly like, oh, this is from China and this was made in the last 50 years. Right. We don't even see that in Soviet Russia, right? We see a lot of Soviet art. And especially if you study graphic design, you're going to look at Soviet propaganda because yeah. decided that that's important. And maybe in part it's because Russia is in a lot of ways a Western nation, you know. Mm-hmm. But part of it is that Chinese communism is different from Soviet communism, right? And the the way that it has taken form is different. And part of it is the kind of interestingly isolationist 
aspects of the Chinese government that mix with these very openly capitalist interests too, right? China sits in this really interesting space where they are presumably a communist nation, although it's not actual communism and we can fall down that rabbit hole if we want to, but it is this authoritarian government that supposedly is communist, but is very actively engaged in the capitalist global trade. Mm-hmm. Money! Right. And and its population is just as engaged. And so it is interesting that we don't see more culture sort of fusing with ours because it is this sort of silent partner, right? It, it, it has been uh, tied into our own economy for 50 or 100 years at this point, and we have people there making the things that we buy here, but it, our relationship is such that, you know, it's very easy to pretend like there isn't a culture there at all. Yeah. Yeah. China's a, a dirty word here. You know, we have so many prominent people, especially in our government on the right side, who have demonized the country as a whole for, for so many reasons that it prevents a lot of the good from kind of shining through, especially over the past year when the China virus was on the tips of so many people's tongues. We are so quick to demonize, but a lot of the people that are typing out those hateful screeds are doing so on devices that were built in China or assembled in China. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, people who, who rely on China, and that is not necessarily a new thing here in the United States, right? Like, as a culture, we have a very easy time compartmentalizing these things, right? It fits into our foundational culture of, for lack of a better term, master and slave. Yeah. From from our oldest days, our founding documents are based on the idea that our entire government and our entire economy is built on people who rule and people who serve those who rule. And so this is, it's easy to argue that this is just an extension of that, right? Like it is, it is the unseen servants who are somewhere else that, that we just tuck away and we don't talk about who it turns out have an entire culture of their own. The difference here is that it is a nation of three or 4 billion people. (laughs) Oops. Uh, What do we do about it? Just tell them that they're bad to say that they're bad. And then go steal all their shit. Yeah. Right. That was that that was fun. When we started talking about doing this episode, a episode of 99% Invisible came up, which is episode 431, the 12 heads from the Garden of Perfect Brightness. I don't want to say favorite because I don't want to paint it as a positive thing, but it it is one of the most interesting stories of artistic theft and contemporary culture. And it is having interesting implications on the way that fine art works now. Chris, you had heard this episode before, right? I had, yeah. Um, Sean, were you familiar with the story at all? Oh, vaguely. I was vaguely familiar with like the opium wars and, you know, the Wests. Wait, you heard about our pillaging before? Yeah, it's almost <laughs> How like, did you hear about that? I don't know. It might have happened a couple thousand times. Oh, maybe. okay. It's just a little thing. It's a small habit. You know, our parents, Big Britain and France, they did it, so we didn't stand a chance. It's in our blood. Mm-hmm. If you have not 
listened to this episode of 99% Invisible, I highly suggest it. Or if you haven't listened to 99% Invisible at all, you're missing out. That too. A audio show about design and almost always about visual design. Yeah. Shouldn't work, but it's one of the best podcasts of all time. We won't go super deep into the history here, but a, a basic, very quick, broad strokes overview. Mid-1800s, Second Opium War, England and France are leading a charge of pillaging China. America's active in Asia around the same time. We may have been active in these activities. Russia was also cheering on, may have been there too. This is the height of English colonialism, right? And America is beginning to sort of think about our own place in that European hierarchy as well. Yeah, chomping at the bit for sure. Right. We aren't quite at McKinley looking for reasons to invade the Philippines yet, but we're getting there. (laughs) Close. And so there had been a number of skirmishes. The first Opium War had ended with a treaty that Britain and France immediately violated. And basically, the West was trying to force China to open up, to open up more ports for trade and to just play along in the way that they that the West wanted China to. China was like, no, we're our own place. We're good, guys. Thanks. <laughs> we're good. You messed us up on opium, and maybe we can't trust you. After a number of, of different skirmishes, as the Western forces are moving northward, they finally land in Yanmingyan, where there is this great palace, the Summer Palace, and... Western forces sacked it. Sacked the fuck out of it. Leveled the palace. It was so large and so ornate that it took three days for the entire place to burn down. And in the process, Western forces seized an estimated 1.5 million pieces of cultural work. What they didn't seize, they destroyed. There are accounts of uh, soldiers using ancient transcripts to light their pipes. But They took everything. They stole the emperor's dog, renamed it Ludi, and gifted it to the Queen of England. That was the part that killed me. I was just like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. You named it Ludi? (laughs) Yeah. Like, cartoon supervillain shit. Yeah. Right? But at this palace, there had been sort of Western embassies and homes of Western diplomats that were built in... Western styles. Italian architects and I believe Belgian architects had had come in and contributed to the building of this palace, and so they had homes there. Um, And one of the iconic pieces was a massive fountain in one of the courtyards that included bronze cast heads of the 12 animals of the Chinese zodiac. Sounds like a really cool fountain. Each head would spit water for two hours a day, And, you know, it it went around in the cycle. And at some point in this process, the heads were cut from their bodies and disappeared. Fast forward 120 or so years. Yeah. China, in attempts to sort of repatriate the area and rebuild their own history, they finally come back into this palace that has been laying in ruins for over a century and start to rebuild it and and kind of build cultural stories around it. 
And around the same time, a couple of the bronze heads show up on the fine art market. Yeah. At Christie's, no less. Yeah. Christie's and Sotheby's both uh, auctioned them. Yeah. For you've seen Laurent. It's just like such a weird, like, mingling of all those bits and pieces of the world. Yeah. And they were not quiet when they figured out where these bronze heads had come from. They advertised them as coming from this palace. They named the event after the sacking and immediately found themselves in a bit of controversy, which didn't stop the sale. But what has followed in the last 20 or 30 years has been some really interesting debate over what role these bronze heads actually play in Chinese art and culture. Jackie Chan made an entire movie about recapturing the heads and helped fund initiatives to get the heads back. Mm -hmm. There's a video game called Sleeping Dogs. I don't know if either of you have ever played that before, but it's like a Grand Theft Auto style game set in Hong Kong. Okay. It's really great, but like a side mission in the, in the game is to find these 12 bronze depictions of the Chinese Zodiac. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting how that's kind of this issue has kind of creeped its way into like modern media in these weird little outlets where you don't really expect it. Yeah. And the uh, 99% invisible episode opens with an auction at Christie's where a Chinese buyer won the bid and then refused to pay for them, but demanded delivery. The mm. message being that these heads don't belong to you. This is ours, bitch. Right. It's ours. Give them back. We represent China. And that view isn't necessarily shared by everyone, including Ai Weiwei, who sees these heads as propaganda themselves, right? Remembering that this was part of a plaza that was built in part by Europeans. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And the heads were cast in Italy, I believe. And yep. so, in Ai Weiwei's view, it is the Chinese government sort of rewriting their own history at the cost of ignoring the complexities of colonialism and the destruction of, of their own country. Yeah. And also as a way to distract from the destruction of the Cultural Revolution as well. Shh. That, that, you know, that, was, that never happened. Shh. Yeah. What are you talking about, Mason? Right. God. Those, yeah. those things didn't exist. Right. And in the article, it was fascinating that, like, it was pointed out, the Chinese government didn't really care about Yunming Yuan until, like, Tiananmen Square. And they're like, oh, fuck. All right. How do we make everyone like us again? Uh, 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 we're good. And the West is bad. Which, like, yes, but no. <laughs> and maybe there's more complexity to it. Maybe you're also bad. No. Uh, no. What are you talking about? Whoever the main character is at the time, they're always good. They've never had any faults. Right. And only communism and capitalism will ever prevail. <laughs> Nothing else. And we will be locked in war with each other for the rest of time. Long story short, these heads have started to return to China. They have returned the horse head to where the plaza once was. Most of the other heads, I believe, have gotten back to China but there are some that have just disappeared that we don't know where they are. The uh, dog, rooster, dragon, sheep, and snake are still MIA. But coming back to artistic influence, Ai Weiwei, in response to the craze of reclaiming these heads, 
made his own collection of Chinese zodiac heads, which is a piece I've actually seen. It was at the Crocker a few years ago. It is just slightly less friendly looking bronze heads of the 12 animals of the Chinese zodiac. The point being that if, if that is to undermine the importance of, of these iconic symbols, or if it is Ai Weiwei poking fun at the government or what, you know, that's open for interpretation. All of this highlights that weird duality of, I guess, pre-communism China, post-communism China. How does, A, the Chinese government attempt to reconcile the, that, you know, that part with no art, no no expression, and it be patriotism, because every country needs that sigh, and see what can we do in reaction to trying to grapple with all those legacies. Right. You could do an entire podcast. Um the cultural significance of China. And there are people who are far more qualified to do that than any of us, none of us being Chinese art specialists. Um, I'm certainly not. But moving to the very contemporary, the now, as China shifts into this global superpower, rivaling what we once were and what Russia once was, its influence is also changing as young people from China begin to move out of China and study outside of China. Chinese art is also spreading, particularly in the area of fashion. Yeah. Part of that, I mean, it always comes down to economics. Um, China is one of, I think, if not the biggest market or one of the biggest growing markets in luxury fashion and goods because mm. of the burgeoning upper class and middle class. Yeah. We also see that a little bit in worldwide releases of movies, like Marvel movies, where we have to like uh, arbitrarily add a Chinese character or like, um, don't mention Taiwan or Hong Kong. No. Yep. Shh. They belong to us. Nothing wrong here. Nothing to look at, people. And it's fascinating to kind of see what direction that kind of thing will take in terms of this burgeoning influx of Chinese artists in the high fashion world. Um, and like the person I mentioned at the top of the hour, Guo Pei, I think is probably ideal for China in many ways. If you look at her work, she does mostly couturier kind of stuff. So it's highly ornate, lots of embroidery, lots of gold. Everything is huge and I think filled with a lot of cultural references. So I think in many ways it's seen as patriotic. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the more interesting Chinese artists you see are all doing that kind of thing with modern fashion where we're trying to get into gender fluid deconstructionalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, there's this question of, well, okay, so why haven't we heard of more of them? Or why aren't more of them a big thing? Because mm-hmm. when I think of fine fashion and any major Asian designers, they're all Japanese. Yoji Yamamoto, uh, Rei Kuosawa from Comte des Garçons. Like, everything falls into the same pattern again and again. Speaking as an American, as somebody who's much more familiar with American culture than Chinese culture or Japanese culture, American consumers prefer not to know where the things come from, at least up until very recently. You know, there are people who want to know where their food comes from. They want to know where their media comes from. They want to know 
all this stuff. But based on my experiences, that that is kind of the minority. So given that we have a couple of major hubs for the arts, we have New York, we have San Francisco, we have LA, despite that, there are many people who aren't who aren't plugged into the process, they're plugged into the end product. But when you have a major power like China, who was on the production side of things for so long, without China's labor market, the Walmarts and targets of the world wouldn't exist. Now, we're at a point where they're no longer just the producers, they're also the consumers as well. Which Sean, like you were mentioning, you know, especially with like film, there are all these things that happen in major movie releases now to kind of appease uh, Chinese government, whether it be creating an alternate version of a film that removes certain things. Or another element that I see is uh, especially uh, it was like the last Avengers movie, whatever the big one was. Uh, Endgame? I think so. I, I can't say for certain, but if I remember correctly, a huge portion of the worldwide sales that helped it break all these records was from China. And so as a result, like the entire economic world is kind of turning on its head a little bit, where all of a sudden we're finding that the biggest consumers or the biggest opportunity to reach consumers is no longer in the West. People are looking towards China, but without giving proper credit to artists of those countries as well, or not trying to highlight artists of those countries and the people who are producing a lot of the things that we consume as well. Right. We find ourselves in this interesting sort of situation where we have created a market where we can pretend like these things are still for us, Mm -hmm. right? It's still the Avengers movies and it has Captain America and it is America superhero stuff. But Increasingly, these films are are made for an international audience, and particularly with China in mind. And that can be said about any Hollywood blockbuster, mm-hmm. right? The big movies are made with these other audiences, at least partially in mind. And not just the audience, but the governments, yeah. right? And you see that in tech as well, where Google is constantly making decisions and censoring and not censoring based on the whims of the Chinese government or to allow themselves to continue operating within China. And part of that is just because if you are going to be a, you know, international corporation and you want to make money, you got to make money mm-hmm. in China. It is interesting to me that that we can live in this world where we as Americans pretend Like, it's not that China doesn't exist, we are very aware that it exists, but that it doesn't have an effect on our lives and that it is not actually the one in charge and and the the true superpower when the reality is is quite the opposite, right? So much of our quintessentially American things arguably were never made for just America, but especially right now are, are made with other places in mind and... That is just how it is. It's an issue that is not right or wrong either way. I think it is far more complicated than that. And especially as long as we continue to hold the dollar as the most important thing, right? Like these things stay complicated. But it is it is an interesting and fascinating disconnect that that culturally we are so gripped by this idea that we are the one true superpower that 
even when all of the evidence shows us to the contrary, we cannot seem to even basically wrap our heads around the fact that the reality is very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like part of that delusional confidence and like all that stuff, I feel like it always just shows up, you know, one of our everlasting themes about like the arts education these Chinese artists get. Like in those articles I sent you about those fashion designers, they were like talented enough, I guess, to, you know, make it out of a Chinese art school. But they really, you know, came into being when they went to Parsons or Ai Weiwei, like, opened his eyes when he, like, came to the U.S. in the 80s because he was one of the first few people allowed to leave the locked door of China. And there's a lot of this, like, especially in, like, the classical music world, you just don't find any of these major or, like, competition-winning Chinese artists not having an American or Western school on their resume. And that is true across all disciplines, right? Yeah. I saw it at, at grad school. When I was teaching, a majority of my students, or at least a large minority, were either Chinese nationals or Chinese immigrants. Part of that was where I was, but a lot of American schools sponsor Chinese exchange students, Mm -hmm. too. And China spends a lot of time and money making sure that their students travel out into the rest of the world. But they come back. (laughs) Right. And, And there was a long history of that. Japan did the same thing post-World War II. There are arguably a number of benefits for that, right? Especially if you are an isolationist nation, if you want to build your culture, it behooves you to send people out to find new ideas and come back and make them your own. What strikes me is that we don't do that, (laughs) right? No. It is the exact opposite of the American approach, which is, this is ours, you are here, and you stay here. And all of the best law schools are here, so why would you not go to school here? You know, that that yeah. sort of thinking, which is insane. Quite, right? quite insane. Yeah. Delusional confidence. Woo-woo! So, what can we learn from this? It's an interesting topic, and I feel like we are just dipping our toes in. We're sort of recognizing that it exists. But it it is deep and complex, and I'm sure that it will continue coming up. I know that one of the things that I get worked up about the most is art theft by not just Western nations, but but wealthy nations. It's it it is a topic that interests me and gets me mad. So I'm sure that we will talk about this sort of stuff later. But in the short term, what can a listener sort of take from this discussion and 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 use practically and and what does it maybe tell them about how they should think about the world that they live in especially if they are here in America and how they should if not change their approach think about the way that they approach it in the first place right i think it's important to understand at least on a broad level, what your country's views are on said other country that is possibly threatening, because that, of course, affects how it is covered in journalism, general views, propaganda. So Shock, the U.S. has propaganda too sometimes, all the time, every single second. That colors what you're allowed to perceive or what you are taught and learn to perceive. And, of course, in that, we lose any sense of nuance or a genuine understanding of what's going on. And especially something like China, like we've briefly covered in its cultural history and it's even its art history, it's so complicated. 
especially like if you tried to imagine it from a U.S. side of somehow we got to, oh wait, we already have an authoritarian government sometimes. But if we had to shut down making art for just, you know, like 60 years, what kind of ripple effects would that have on us handling our history and like what happens when you lose those 60 mm-hmm. years? The Like the effect would reverberate for centuries and it still is. So I guess a mixture of wariness, sympathy and understanding of propaganda. Yeah. And to build on that, I know we beat this drum a lot, but education is so vitally important to understanding the world in which you live in. There's, then isolationism that is so prominent in America where we take the information that we have or that we're given, whether it's by our educators or by our parents, and we assume that that's the gospel when it isn't. And there's no person in the world that can know everything, which means that there's so much that we don't know, which is why Education, specifically arts education in this instance, is so vitally important to shaping your understanding of the world and what you consume every day. While you can't know everything, it sure fucking doesn't hurt to try. There's a reason why we have this perception that universities are liberal. Mm -hmm. It's not because George Soros is bumping Jewish space laser money into our nation's universities. Oh, I got paid for that. Did you get paid for that? Did you get a check? I did, yeah. Yeah. Chinese Jewish solidarity. It says on the bottom of the check that you don't talk about where this money came from. Oh, shit, shit, shit. They're going to aim it at us. Run! Meaning what? Brought to you by George Soros. (laughs) (laughs) I would wear that shirt and, like, go to, like, Fresno and see how badly that would end. (laughs) Uh, He doesn't doesn't pay taxes. Fuck him. (laughs) The reason why universities tend to be places for liberal thought is because a funny thing happens when you are introduced to other people from other places who think differently than you. Mm -hmm. You start to think differently. (gasps) And specifically, you start to become more empathetic just by nature of other people because you you understand where other people are coming from. (gasps) And in our fucked up little world, empathy... And cultural understanding is associated with the left and with being a progressive. That's why universities are liberal places, because they are places of a lot of people coming together and trading ideas. If they're not liberal, there's something very wrong happening. <laughs> it's a, uh, I was, I was going to say it's, it's not a bug, it's a feature, but I don't know if that applies here. It's like, it's not the main goal of a, of a university to liberalize people, to turn them into gay leftist commies. It's, right. it's just a byproduct. It's, uh-oh. Education just leads to that end more often than not. Oh. Hmm. Unless you go to law school and then... Oh, then you're just a schmuck. Or MBAs? Fuck off. It's a crapshoot at that point. Um, yeah. That argument also always ignores how many college Republicans there are, you mm-hmm. know, and how big those clubs actually are. They probably match the general population, which is to say floating somewhere around 25%. But this is a, a perfect example of, of that. And the one takeaway from this episode should not be that China is good or bad. China's as a government and as a authoritarian 
nation has a lot of very bad things in its history books. Things that I would argue we have too. In every other country. That's right. Probably even including Switzerland. Probably. They just have a good marketing team. Yeah. The Swiss <laughs> have some dark secrets. So the takeaway, as so often is the case, from this should not be China good or or bad, or America good or bad. It is that there are layers of complexity to this. And we are talking about individual people who are part of a larger culture, which we, quite frankly, as a nation, do not understand and have shown no willingness to. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to understand the world that we live in, and if we want to understand the forces that are being exerted upon it, we might as well take a moment to understand arguably one of the last true superpowers on the planet, which is China. Yeah, also when they take over and we all have to speak Mandarin, like, you know, you, you could like at least hold a conversation. I don't have that much faith in the American people for all of us to learn Mandarin. I don't have enough faith in myself to learn Mandarin at this point <laughs> in my life. <laughs> yeah, but it's the Chinese government. I think they won't give you an option here, sweets. <laughs> well, there's always an option. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, right. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> It's a little, it's a little grim. <laughs> and it may not be an option for me. It may just be a pre-decided thing. But, you know, that's how an authoritarian government goes. Sometimes you don't learn the national language because your brain is ruined and, and you die. And if that's the, if that's the spot I hold. <laughs> and Mason dies. For the record, I would love to learn Mandarin. I just know that I, you know. You have a, a deep enough level of understanding of yourself to know that you will die before you learn Mandarin. Right. And not because I don't want to learn Mandarin or I'm against it. I just, I, ju I just know. <laughs> we'll miss you. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?